So the first thing that I'd like to just talk about for a few minutes is this concept of chaos and why when the three of us got together and we were thinking about what do we find to be a common resonant theme and of all the things that we love to sit down and discuss and particularly given your specializations in Deuteronomy and the Book of the Twelve, what was it that was resonating with us with this idea of chaos? And so we also want to ask you all because you showed up. So maybe you showed up because it's Spark and you love Spark and we're glad you're here and you get to have a yummy dinner together and hang out and cool notebooks. But also, one of the aspects that brought me to the table with this is that I feel often we consider God to be God in times of order and blessing and plenty. And there's not a lot of teaching on how to recognize the presence of God in times of want and difficulty and pain and loss and chaos. And we have many narratives within the church in particular. We'll say, oh, have you seen this church ministry experience? God is so blessing it. And when you see that, the translation or when somebody says that is there's a lot of people or there's a lot of money or it's getting a lot of attention or something. Now, we don't always mean that, but sometimes the metrics by which we measure whether or not God's presence is there or God's blessing is there comes in the form of what seems to be important within our society as terms of success. And so... That was part of what I was hoping we could also start talking about as we think about this and ground it in the text, specifically tonight in Deuteronomy and the Book of the Twelve, and then tomorrow we'll expand that into the New Testament. How do we see God in times of chaos, and how specifically did the ancient Israelites, did they only recognize God in the Book of Deuteronomy and the Book of the Twelve when things were working the way they wanted them to? Or how did they also sort of wrap their heads around God's presence when things aren't working. So either one of you can jump in first. So, so often in the Old Testament, these pulses of chaos are, are not as chaotic as they might seem, but instead they are moments for opportunity. And it's an opportunity to stop and to see as God sees. Because when God looks at, when we're sitting there in the midst of our chaos, and we're like, oh my gosh, everything's going wrong, um, we can't see as God sees in those moments. And I think that in the Old Testament, so often the chaos is is a moment um, of potential. And I think that one of the places that this is most clear is in the creation narrative. We've got the disordered chaos of the watery depths at the very beginning. And you would think, gosh, that's terrible. That's a big snarl of mess. But God looks at it, and the best I can liken it to is um, you guys have children running in and out of here all the time. Children are chaotic. They are little wildlings who are out of control. And in my own church, when we have children, the children's sermon and all the kids come forward, it's a roiling mess of rolling bodies and snot, right? All right there. And it is so beautiful. It is chaos and it is beauty and it is potential. And so I think that when the ancient Israelites are thinking about chaos, certainly they're thinking, some of them, 
you've got, you've got diversity within the ancient Israelites, just like we have diversity today. Some of them are thinking, this is something to be controlled and ordered. And others are thinking, this is something to be nourished. And I think if we can, if we can lock into that idea that this is something to be nourished, um, then the chaos might not be as scary. Cindy. That, I mean, I was going to also go to the creation narratives it. because it, the beginning of what is happening is, is really so beautiful in not only the potential, but um, the tohu vabohu part of, of something that is undefined. And the mm. things that are dark and undefined feel really scary. And, and part of the creation narrative is that God stands outside of that and can bring order into what seems really scary and disordered. That narrative is repeated over and over and over because we find things to be chaotic that can be a potential, you know, and and there is often the call, you mentioned how even in the book of the 12, but it's throughout the whole Hebrew Bible, it's constantly a, remember the God of creation because he's the God who stands outside of that and can order this whatever feels chaotic. He stands outside of all of that and can bring order into what feels chaotic. And yeah, so I I see that a lot. And what I keep coming back to, I mean, it's interesting because when you phrase it in terms of the ancient Near East, I mean, the ancient Near Eastern people, they very often use snakes and dragons and sea creatures and the sea to mean chaos because no human can control the water. And so that, the things that feel out of control was how, were the types of images they used to talk about chaos. And so there, there's that element too, but what we see in the, like the perception of chaos is often when the way that what we are experiencing is not what we want to be experiencing. We think it's chaotic, where sometimes it's not all that chaotic. And sometimes it is chaotic. And because it's chaotic doesn't mean that God isn't present, but that he's asking other people to join you in the chaos mm-hmm. and to be a part of that. Um, I mentioned like with Deuteronomy, I mean, and I was just thinking about this a lot in not only what does Deuteronomy say about chaos, but there's been so much happening in life right now in Philadelphia, in my community, among my friends, and in my family. That's been so hard. And I'm like, please stop. And I'm getting ready to talk about chaos in Deuteronomy. Right? And I had to just really think about what is the truth in that, for even for me. And I kept coming back to It's not that God is stopping all the hurt that's going on, Mm -hmm. but he's giving me people to kind of stand alongside, or he's calling me to stand alongside some of these other friends and other people. And and I think there's something so beautiful and enriching that comes from the way that we're behaving in the midst of something that we think is chaotic and beyond our control, because it is beyond our control but we can control how we behave together in that. Thank you. Um, I have like 15,000 thoughts in my head right now, so I'm going to push on one. When we go to Genesis chapter 1, and we open up, and in Hebrew it starts, 
Bereshit bara Elohim et ha-shamayim ve-et ha-aretz, ve-ha-aretz ha-ta tohu vavohu, which was the word you just mentioned, that phrasing, tohu vavohu. If you haven't said it before, it's really fun to say. Tohu vavohu. Um, not tofu, but tohu vavohu. And it is translated in English oftentimes of like formless, void, emptiness, right? But we don't actually, we can't really translate it directly into English, nor is it incredibly easily understood even within the Hebrew, because it's not repeated but a handful of times, Jeremiah, Isaiah, maybe one other time I'm trying to remember, um, in our Hebrew, where it's tohu vavohu, this sort of chaos. So that's kind of the, a general, chaos is a catch-all term for things were like weird, kind of a disordered, is it a mess? It's sort of hard to explain. In my um, kids' kindergarten class, her teachers were teaching this concept, and they had all the kids go out to recess, and when the kids came back in, the teachers had trashed the room. They tipped over chairs and desks and emptied trash and tossed papers all around. And then they told the kids, this is tohu vavohu. This is just like sort of a little bit of a craziness. And I'm pushing a little bit on does God stand outside of it or it says as it persists on that God's hovering over, right? So everything's this tohu vavohu and the wind of God is hovering over then the surface of the deep, which I think is the abyss you were just talking about, like sea monsters and sea and chaos and crazy, and then and, and over that space. And so I'm wondering if maybe the reframing, for me at least, isn't that God is standing separate or outside of the chaos and looking in and could pull order out, but God's like in it. Like, like, oh, this is my favorite part. Like, this is the potential part. This is the part where it's tohu vavohu. And now it's primed and ready for vaihi or. Now it's primed and ready for and let there be light. And now I'm going to separate light from darkness. And there's going to be something called day and there'll be something called night. Like, there's something about the chaos at the beginning in that tohu vavohu moment that makes me feel like my whole life I've thought, how do I get away from those moments? And now I'm thinking in all of my daily life too, I'm never going to get away from those moments. So the, what I need to do is try to reorder my mind to see God hovering in it, over it. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the wording that I used is, I mean, same. in my head, it, it's the same. Same, absolutely. And it comes because the ancient Near Eastern view of the chaos was the gods were a part of the chaos. So the gods were that the fresh and the salty water that were commingling and out of them gives birth to the whole system of gods. And so what is truly unique in the Israelite creation narrative is God is outside. So he is outside that mess from which the ancient Near Eastern people saw their gods come out of. Cool. And so it, it, it is a standing outside. Even if he's hovering, it's, he's, he's outside. Yeah, he's, he's not in it. the chaos. He has control over that chaos. Nice. Yeah. Anna, do you have any thoughts? I, I just keep thinking that it's kind of, it, it's a bit of both and. Um, so it is a bit of that. I think that's why we have two, two creation narratives in Genesis. That's chaotic to our minds, right? No, tell the story one way. We're Westerners. Come on. But the ancient thinkers were like, well, 
you can tell the story a bunch of different ways. And I think that one way you can tell the story is that God is hovering over it and then organizing it. Another way that you can tell the story is that God is hovering. And I think this is how it's different from the Babylonian gods. God's hovering over it, not deep inside of it, but God is nurturing it and bringing forth life from it rather than in there in the brawl, throwing the punches with the teeming chaos, you know? God looks at the chaos and, again, sees potential rather than, I don't know, a moment, an opportunity for more violence. More violence or an escape or like this is bad now, so let's go over here. We'll escape this thing, yeah. right? Yeah. And we'll go to a different place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Deuteronomy also <laughs> tells us a creation narrative or borrows from the creation narrative using, again, a lot of the Genesis language. And so it's in the song that's at the end in Deuteronomy 32, which is really incredibly beautiful. Um, I mean, the psalmists retell the story, too, and everyone retells it slightly different and highlights different aspects of it. But in that case, in the case of Deuteronomy, it is, we get again, the Spirit of God who is hovering, but it's hovering over the image of the Israelites as a child. Mm -hmm. And in a very, very vulnerable place, in the wilderness-type place that has no water, where everything is going to kill you, and so in that case, it's not a watery mess. It's a, it's a dangerous area in which you have no control. So still chaos in the sense of you cannot control that environment. And the picture being, but God was there. And God was providing and protecting and developing and encouraging and nurturing in that kind of context as well. So then we're seeing that same kind of... Um, like the creation play in the way that Deuteronomy reframes the, the picture. That's super fun to think about then in light of like the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of John, which both start with yeah. in the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. And particularly with John, it's, things are very chaotic during Jesus' birth, right? And they're in tough places. Mm-hmm. Um, and to sort of hear those resonances that you're pulling out of both Deuteronomy and Book of the Twelve and those spaces would be pretty, would be resonant with the communities of their day as well. It's fun. Mm -hmm. So we, our professor um, at JUC and and dear friend of Cindy's in particular, Dr. Paul Wright, used to say that the land of Israel is a place of mice where the cats come to play. And sometimes, meaning that um, Israel is a, a mouse and there's cats all around. So Assyria, Babylon, um, and Egypt in the south, and they all want... We need a map. We need a map. No, I know. Let's is, go out to the hall. This is um, what I tell my people all the time. I'm like, I need, give me a map. Give me a map. And, we and then, we, then I can tell you what right. I have in my head. So, so this land bridge in between that the cats all want access to, but God places the mice there, the Israelites there. And maybe there's one time, and we joke about this in Garden to Garden, there's one time where you know, Israel gets strong enough to be a rodent of unusual size. So we've got, like, (laughs) King Solomon is strong enough, and he can kind of push all the way up north towards Lebanon and all the way down south to Elat. And so that works really well for that time till he's gone, and then they're back again to not being quite so R-O-U-S-E, right? Um, So to that end, when you were talking, Cindy, about the land, and I was sort of thinking about, well, in the context of the land, we have these different elements that push and pull on enough for us, not so much, like God's sending us to a place where we can't just irrigate by foot, 
and we're going to have to beg God for rain. But God also sends the Israelites to a place where they're going to have to constantly be on guard. And there will always be people passing through and wanting more when they pass through. And I was just wondering, to push on both as for, for the conversation, what do you think about that? Because that in and of itself feels so chaotic. It feels like if you wanted to preserve a people, that you'd put them in a place where they're not going to constantly be surrounded by enemies that are regularly intruding into space and destroying space and exiling and everything else. So in both Deuteronomy and in the Book of the Twelve, I hear people wrestling with this mm-hmm. because they're living with some very difficult realities, which is they're, they're under constant threat or they've been exiled. Mm-hmm. Where is God in that mess and what, why did God put us in a land where cats like to play? And is that just the expected Damascus road we should have right, for all of life? And why did, yeah, I mean, the question... I think that that is the story of the Hebrew Bible. Why did God do it this way? <laughs> and there aren't, I, I think that, that, that they're wrestling with that over and over again. There's not really a good answer. It, does, it definitely doesn't make any sense to me. But even the way that the people of God define themselves, they're like, yeah, well, we're the descendants of slaves, and we didn't really fight back or anything. God fought for us. Like, none of this is cool in the context of the ancient world. And I think that, <laughs> right? Like, if you're going to be like, let's make up a narrative about where we come from and be like, we are mighty warriors, you know? Um, or like, even Moana, we were voyagers once. But no, they were like, we were slaves once, and we didn't do anything to free ourselves. Um, and so, but I do think that, that that narrative is one that Christians have inherited um, because that is the narrative of Christ. Why do it that way? Why have a descendant of slaves who was not a citizen, who was a criminal, who was executed by the state, be your savior? That's nonsense. That doesn't make any sense. And so... It certainly isn't the way I would do it, um, but it is certainly something that I think we have inherited. That um, it's a top. The kingdom of God that we want to come on earth is a topsy turvy kingdom, and thank God it's not the way I would do it. Yeah. yeah. It. I. I love this question. I love. Um, I've been spending a lot of time in the last year, year and a half, thinking about the themes in the Bible, and very specifically, the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Because we pray the Lord's Prayer every week in my church, and your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? And what is that kingdom? And what does it mean for it to come on earth? And I see throughout the biblical narrative, including Deuteronomy, with the whole don't be like Egypt, which has the best kind of place. They have the type of land that'll give you the resources you need to conquer the world. And that's not the place you're supposed to be because in that kind of territory, you will build an empire. Mm -hmm. And the empire is not the kingdom of God. And so the, the whole idea of human empire and God's kingdom are themes, I think, from beginning to end in the Bible. 
And I think in putting them in a low-resourced area, it forces them to think about kingdom of God. Mm. And Deuteronomy would say in chapter 4 that if you go into this place and live according to the wisdom I'm giving you, everyone around you will see that you are wise, and they will say, who is as wise as these people who has a God in their midst? Yeah, and so their job is not to be safe all the time, and it's not to go out and conquer the world and impose their views on the world. Their job is to sit in the middle of the crossroads, slightly in danger most of the time, but reflecting God to everyone else. And in that way, they're reflecting God's um, priorities and the way that God wants his people to be because it reflects his character. So there's... Something in this human empire versus God's kingdom, it is so topsy-turvy because we really want to control our environment and control, like we want to be secure enough, we want to be wealthy enough, and that's not ever what God calls his people to. Yes, that's so good because they're so surrounded by empires. Every other direction, there's, there's a sea and a desert, but there's empire, right? And God calls Abram from an empire, yeah. um, from massive power. And then even Moses and the people of God called from and out of empire, right? Moses raised by the empire, um, called the son of Egypt. And what's so lovely is that God says, I didn't pull you out because you were powerful or awesome or like really good at stuff. Like I just pulled you out because I loved you. That's the narrative. And exactly as you mentioned, like, so that you can be a light to the nations. Not a force, not an overwhelming, overbearing kingdom, not, not an enforcer, a light. A light. A and it's way. what, I mean, it, it is through the whole Bible. We could go to Matthew 16, you know, and Jesus is kind of, it's the prime example of Jesus going, this is my kingdom, this is what it looks like. I'm going to go die for you. And he says that in a space that completely reflects everything that is strong about Rome. So it's in the geographical placement. He's calling people to, to recognize Rome shows off its power in this way. Jesus as the ruler of the kingdom of God, shows off his power in this way. And those are very different. And so which kingdom do you want to be a part of? Okay, so to all of you, questions, comments, rustlings? It is one strain of Christian thought to take all of these passages and to look at the promises. And specifically, I think in Deuteronomy, uh, I'm giving you this land so that you will live long and prosper. And that gets extrapolated into all sorts of things. And it is my, let me preface this by saying that it is my evaluation that much of Christian thought has taken that and constructed a whole host of diverse prosperity gospels. Not just the prosperity gospel where there's kind of exorbitant wealth and and stuff like that, but a prosperity gospel that if I do X, then I am going to get Y, and that Y is going to be good things, benefits, uh, positive things, happiness, joy, etc. So the prosperity kind of thing. Um, I would love to hear your evaluation and or um, critique and or perspective on 
kind of the vast swath of Christian experience, which books that you can buy in the store that say, you know, here's how to have a happy marriage, a joyful life. Here's how to, you know, how, how the prayer of Jabez kind of things, right? <laughs> um, because prosperity is one of those words that's used. So in the midst of all of the chaos and God in the chaos and the land not being Egypt, et cetera, what is the definition or understanding of prosperity then? <laughs> Love it. I mean, those books that you're mentioning, they sell more than ours. They really do. <laughs> it's a, they really do. It's a message that tickles the ears. And, and people really love it. I mean, this is where I will always lean in my first version of the response, of which, Kevin, you layered that, like, so. <laughs> we'll, we'll come back maybe over dessert and kind of go at round two to the answer <laughs> to that. But I will always immediately and first go to the land. Because, like, the land is always this equalizer, this, um, it puts a firm foundation under your feet in terms of what is prosperity. Well, just go look at the land and the way that people had to live on the land. The prosperity is not the way we talk about prosperity anymore. And so, the, the, all of the language we use to talk about prosperity is so driven from what we think prosperity is where the blessing that the Bible talks about is so much, it's, an, it's not that. <laughs> like, it's not a promise to be comfortable. It, you're still in a subsistence living land. So God didn't say, I'm taking you out of a subsistence living, which is what we assume prosperity is. And that, that is not the case. So it still is in a, in a vulnerable place that is really hard, Living with God in your midst is the blessing, right? It's that because if you're creating a place where human relationship with other humans and human relationship with the land, like you were talking about the, the holiness of the land, right? Yeah. That that is the kind of place God can dwell. And that is the blessing, I would say. You know, in terms of I think this is what Deuteronomy is getting at. Because then Deuteronomy all goes on to like the the type of um, subsequences for bad decisions is being torn away from the land and being torn away from God in your midst. Mm -hmm. So the blessing would be the opposite of that. That's my first go at your question. Yeah, it's it's not abundance of things. It is enough for everyone which is a completely new way of thinking about things, right? That is not usually the way that we think about things, but enough for everyone. Um, and I think, like you were saying, it's not, like, when you, when you leave enough for other people to take some from the edges of your fields, you're not sure if you're going to have enough. And if you trust God in the wilderness to give you enough manna to get you through the Sabbath, then that's kind of scary. What if you don't? What, that, that's why you want to store up a, a whole lot more, a stockpile of it. Um, that's why in the New Testament, that one guy, I forget how the parable goes, he's got like all those storehouses, and then God's like, you're going to die. Um, <laughs> you're not going to take any of that with you. Yeah, so I think, I think that we fooled ourselves. I th- okay, so me, myself, when, when I look at the narrative of these people, and when I look at the narrative of Christ, I am much more a descendant of empire and abundance than I am a descendant like these people are. 
And I think within this room, we've got differing levels of that, right? The intersectionality of each individual person means that you may be closer to that kind of abundance that the kingdom of God gives, where, where other, others of us are a lot closer to the kind of abundance that the empire gives and the savings account gives and having a really fancy Nissan Pathfinder gives, you know? Tesla. That's, that's, the, that's the one around uh, here. Some nice I just said Nissan Pathfinder because that's what I got. It is. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> we just had an electric vehicle expo. So yeah, nice. I love that. And I think, you know, when you're talking about what's the blessing, it's like rain in its season, mm. right? Rain at the right time. You'll be so blessed You'll know you're blessed and in, like, the peace of God. Like, things are going well when you get some rain. And that's such a different way than how we think about it, right? To exactly how we measure prosperity or blessing according to terms of the empire versus the terms of God. And this idea, too, that this is Deuteronomy, right? And, and, and it, this is the whole Bible. That you because will go Deuteronomy is and the best book sit, of the Bible that everyone It's the best book that everyone says, right? Um, that each will sit under their own vine and their own fig tree, and they're going to have peace. There's something in all of these blessings as they push through when we talk about even what plants are going to be in the land and mm-hmm. the symbolism behind each one of those and what each provides for you. And even as we talk about milk and honey and in the Bedouin culture, I'm saying, you know, if, if you have nothing, if you don't have enough rain that year for really a lot of grain, but you can still have enough milk and honey, your children will still live, right? There's so much of just enough life and how the measure of a warrior in a lot of Bedouin desert culture was the measure of hospitality because it was also enough for everyone. It had to be that we were still caring, that the land, and without hospitality, you were going to die. And so you had to be the one, and, and it would be your turn next time. You had to be able to welcome people in, and what a blessing that would be to be able to welcome people in and share, because that meant you had been blessed, right? That was the show of wealth, was the extension of your sharing with one another, yeah, mm-hmm. the prosperity. So other questions? Yes. So I, I would say I have a related question to what Kevin was asking, and I'll say it's an easy question. Oh. Um, is thinking about the chaos that it is being a Christian in America today oh and Christianity in America today, especially with a very maybe anti-intellectual strain on things, mm. I'm really curious about your thoughts about how biblical scholarship, as I think you mm. both are, can and should inform theology, inform pastoral work, and how could we maybe leverage some of that to work on the chaos that is um, Christianity in America so today? Good. That's a fantastic question. That's Thank a great you. question. All right, doctors. Oh, my. I wish I knew. So, I mean, I think we do good work, right? Like, I'm happy for people to hear from us and to learn things from us, but I think what it, what it might take in this country, at least, is to listen more to people who aren't like me, who aren't the inheritors of empire, um, to listen to people who are part of the Black Lives Movement or people who have been disinherited um, in this country. And I don't know how to make people like me listen to the other, you know? And gosh, I wish I did. 
but I think, I think that could be a part of the healing process, a part of maybe the farmers who are in the lush land, um, the Ninevites who have all this stuff and are the colonizers listening to the Judean prophet. I think that that could be a good step in the right direction. The farmers listening to the um, shepherds that they don't want to hear from. And I think, I think that that could bring healing um, if, if, if people like me would shut up, which is silly, which is a funny thing to say. No, but, no, yeah. So hold on, just so we're clear. Yeah. Yes, thank you. You're very sweet. And let me just also say, um, it wasn't that long ago that people like you couldn't get PhDs well, in, this is true. in the fields that you're in. Right. Um, and that there are many schools in North America where women like me cannot get Masters of Divinity. This is very true. Or even if you get then the Masters of Divinity, that's just so you could be a really good partner of the person who also got one mm-hmm. um, in their own space. So, yes, this is true. and, this is true. you know, this when we invited true. brilliant scholars and people, some people here, not here, not you, um, in the larger community, saw that it was all women. There was, is it a women's conference? I'm like, do you ask that when you see all the men up there? So if you see three men speaking, is it like, is it a men's conference, or do you also know that women can also be there? And it, it's a decent question. It's not, I don't think it was meant to be offensive, but I just want to push a little bit. Your voice is incredibly important, and the work and the linguistic work and the study that both of you have done to be where you are it, and to make as little as you do, given all the hard work that you've made, um, is to be applauded. So, but, but I think you're, I want to also affirm, listening to stories mm-hmm. and hearing the stories of others and leaning in and trying to tune our ears to God is bigger than my own view and my own perspective and there's more mm-hmm. to be heard from the voices that have been marginalized right. systemically and otherwise, or maybe I've just done so in my own unconscious bias is actually is core and central. And we have a fall retreat you're all welcome to, where is all focused on trying to listen to stories with Mark Iaconelli in November at the Costa Norsera. And you can come back and hang out with us. It's going to be fantastic. That would be amazing. Is there going to be more animal stuff? We can work on it. It's right by the coast. You'll be okay. Yeah. So, Cindy, your answer. Yes. Yes. We're coming back. Great white sharks. That's what I'm all about. Yeah. I mean, I, I... that question is the source of much frustration in the world. And so there's, I, have, I have many thoughts on this. Um, one is, oh, okay, so the need to acquire, well, one, Spark does a really good job asking lots of hard questions mm-hmm. and not solving it. <laughs> so in just yeah. putting hard questions out in the middle of the room, you've built your community among circling the hard questions and going, we don't know. <laughs> so yeah. so that, like, this is a way to do it, right? But that requires really hard work because it requires an awful lot of humility mm. and an awful, like, and the humility of I'm, I'm wrong. I'm wrong about something in Deuteronomy. Not chapter 12. You are not. But, right, like, there, I'm wrong about something, and I'm totally wrong about what I think the kingdom of God is. It's mm. bigger, better, and more explosive. I just, I just don't know what it is. And because I'm convinced of that, yeah. I want to sit around the table with other people and ask them questions because they're viewing things from a very different perspective. They are also totally wrong. But I can learn something. There's going to be a glimmer of truth in what they're saying. And, and I just think if we, 
it, the hard thing is, do I think in North America we have the environment that allows for people to go, oh, I'm sorry, I think I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about what you think. No, yeah. I don't think we're there. I would love for us to be there and to develop that, um, that it, to grow in that area. Uh, so I'm not overly hopeful, but I think that's what we need to do. And um, I just, on my podcast, Context Matters, I just interviewed these two women who are brilliant, brilliant, and they were fantastic because they gave this little master class in hermeneutics, which is basically biblical interpretation, right? We are totally removed from the text. How do we come in conversation with people who have a different perspective than us to learn the truth of what the Bible is saying? And at the core of it is a lot of humility. They just, yeah. they built this great conversation around, and it, it goes to the binding and loosening, again, yes. from Matthew yes. 16, the, the work of each community, and the prophets were doing this all the time. The prophets, every community, as context changes, as our society changes, the job of every community is to figure out how do we stretch the text to fit our context or when do we restrict it. But at some point, if you pull too hard, you'll break it. And it's no longer the biblical text. It's now you've made up your own message. right? And, so, and I think, and over and over, I always come back to, and I'm, I try to tell everyone at my church this all the time, read the Bible in community, like with other people, because that will force you to flex your muscles in hearing a slightly different point of view, a different story, a different interpretation for the text. And now I think I'm rambling and not quite no, following your question. No, I, let me say one of the reasons why I wanted both of them to come, besides the fact that obviously, as you can tell, they're brilliant and scholars and have really worked hard to be where they are. Both of them bridge between the academy and the church all the time. And you're both working on those bridges, you with your undergrad, and then also just in your community and your work, Bible for Normal People, Context Matters, the work you're doing in Philly, and, and before this too, your, your missionary kid background. You're, I mean, like all of this has been, when you get into biblical scholarship, you often find people who have just jumped the shark all the way over to the other side, right? And they're like, none of this is true and matters, and we can't know who wrote it, therefore I know nothing, and so I'll just continue to persist in, in arguing about this one word in Greek for the rest of my career, or this one particular type of pottery forever. And those things can be very wonderful, but you can see sort of exercises in futility happening yeah. with significant arguments in the academy about things that we also know ultimately are unknowable. Right. But there's no epistemic humility in any of it, right? Um, and then you can see the same thing happening in the church. So in the church, you can also see people putting flags in the ground and demanding certainty on particular theologies or positions or aspects, and also still ultimately at some point, like, but we know through a glass dimly. Mm -hmm. And so the humility piece, I think, is very important, but it's also what causes both of you to keep reaching and building bridges into both the academy and the church, yeah. because you recognize there's wisdom in both places, mm -hmm. and that both places need each other. Yeah. And to your question, when Kevin and I started Spark, it was to try to build some of this bridge mm -hmm. between the academy and the church. And we go to the Society of Biblical Literature Conference often enough, um, and whenever I go, I think I'm one of like two pastors 
that are only pastors that are right, there, right? right? That aren't also in the academy somehow. Yeah. And every time I go, I feel a little bit out of place, and I'm, I'm like, don't have a PhD and all the things, right? I'm not presenting papers to hold my position in the academy. But this is the push. It's to try to continue to say we both need each other and we're trying to reach and hold hands still because there's something to, to be known about it. I think the work also done in seminary is deeply important. Yeah. And a lot of our seminaries aren't always teaching land, mm-hmm. context, language. A lot of seminaries are dropping language requirements, yeah. which is really challenging and difficult. Yeah. Um, and there's something I already want to talk to you about in Exodus 34 later about some Hebrew. So, um, so I think those things, um, we have to continue to have a culture of wrestling and of scholars and residents. Like that's, we have to pursue that in the church. And some churches are better than others at that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I love about being here at the synagogue is scholarship and residence is part and parcel. Like study is the highest form of worship in mm-hmm. Jewish practice. And you can just go into the library right there and see all the Talmud and all out. And what I love working about here is that on a weekly basis, you know, each on that side, staff members, and on this side, staff are walking back and forth going, what do you think about this text? So we're in a community that brings it forth. And I think it's contagious. I'm praying it's contagious. There is definitely something different about building a community in North American Christianity. Protestant Christianity has been all about creating certainty. And so, and certainty happens if you can draw a heavy black line on the ground. And, and there's little that I am willing to do heavy black line on the ground. You know, in um, when you start teaching, I mean, when Etz is teaching, right, it's how many more questions can you ask? And so, therefore, you're not centering certainty, right. you're centering curiosity. And... And again, so just back to the curiosity bit. Like, can we be curious about the text instead of so certain about the text? It's just certainty gives us security. And so we, we crave that. And, and we want to do the, yeah, we just, we, we want things to be dogmatic and certain because then I know I'm in. Which is why some people want to go back to Egypt. Yeah. Because it's certain. Yeah. I know when my meal's coming. I know what it's going to be. I know my schedule. I know who's in charge. And yes, it was slavery, but it was certain. Freedom's so much harder. And, and then we can be certain about who's in and who's out. Mm-hmm. And we can draw that line. And I'm, I think that you're right. One of the things that I most frequently get into fights with people on social media about is when they're like, well, the Bible clearly says, and that is one thing that education will teach you is, oh, the Bible's not super clear about anything. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think that, that that level of certainty, not only for prosperity, but also to be like, okay, I, this one lady that I went back and forth with a little bit was like, the Bible is clear. LGBTQ folks are out. And I was like, wow, I'm glad that you're sure about that. The Bible sure isn't. And she was just like, how could you? You just, you have your own agenda. And I was like, man, I don't know. I just think that I'm looking at the text and looking at the language and being like, I don't know if it's there or not. And so I think that that is something like that studying the languages will help immediately move you away from certainty. It's just such a different world. 
More questions from all of you. Sit down and hang out and chat. Well, I work in a children's hospital, and there you have to be very simple about spirituality. Mm. Um, and so when I was listening, and you were talking about a tantrum, is that, you know, it felt as if God was giving some good ideas to the Israelites, and they said, well, God, you're onto something, but this is what it means, and this is how we're going to do it. So they were talking, and, and that God has been trying to say through time, like, hey, can you just zip it and listen? And that's what all those prophets said. And then God himself came as Jesus and again said, can you just simply listen to what I mean by it? Um, and I think we've continued to do that up until now. Mm. And I think what you mean with an empire is Christendom. Mm. And, um, you know, we, we, we put ourselves at the center of, our, of, of Christianity in, pla or in the world or of creation instead of like saying we're part of it. And I think there also comes the humility in, you know, and, and when you, what I've learned in seminary back in the days was when you ask a question, the answer is a deeper question, yeah. not, not, yeah. not certainty. That's a good point. And um, I think when we give up our control and, and the need to, to talk and give answers and give it back to God and truly listen, then is what he, then healing can take place. When you look at trauma, because when you talk about going back to Egypt, I'm thinking, I want to go back to the abuser, right? Mm. Is that, you know, what I do as a chaplain is, you know, a sense of, sense of healing and wholeness is that you attend to the pain. You bring it into the light. And that's what we need to do. We need to listen with all our being. And there's also a wave of Christianity through history that has tried that, you know, mysticism or, or those, those wi women in the medieval era who tried to clarify that. And so I think we need to start listening to God and, and connecting with the land like the one Panoam did, right? Mm -hmm. in, in, a, in Cape Cod area, instead of people who want to control. And um, because I, I hear colonialism in your story, separation from the land, separation from people. Mm -hmm. And we have not learned. You know, we have to start learning together and doing that as a community. Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thanks, Patrick. It's okay. I'm, I'm glad you brought in the mystics, yeah. too, because the mystics are super uncomfortable for the modern church. Mm -hmm. uh, because North American, yeah. you know, it's, the church is, tries to close the door on dogma, and the mystics stick their fit in, foot in. <laughs> They're like, yeah, you got to keep that cracked open, <laughs> because uh, God is not always going to do that, and he's going to do something else. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Felicia. So my question is about... I just want you to say a little bit more about when you shared. Can you put when, your face uh, just a little oh, closer, Mike? For those oh, sorry. Thank you. Um, when you are concerned about your own needs, open your hands. Mm -hmm. I just would beautiful. like for you to say more about that mm -hmm. because um, also connected to the curbing your appetite for consumption to supply all your own needs. Yeah. That was just like very big for me and like stood out to me but I just would like to hear more about what that means yeah so um I'm not good at it 
and which is sometimes why I think God puts me in positions where I'm teaching it a lot because a lot of that Deuteronomy has to teach and a lot of lessons from the wilderness and all these things I'm awful at like really I understand it intellectually and consuming it at a heart and emotional level is really hard mm -hmm. so it's the, this is coming out of things that Deuteronomy has really challenged me personally on there's five of us in my fam five kids in our family we all have different relationships to money but I'm the super responsible like pay off your debt like I'm I'm so mindful of every penny my older sister is so generous in just creating this beautiful just just give it away it's fine and just give it away and I have been trying to be more and more like her and I'm I'm not but I see Deuteronomy calling people to be that way and I th and this okay so this too comes from Ellen Davis I She's so amazing. She's the best. So Ellen Davis, in her discussion of Genesis chapter 2, why is there a tree you cannot eat from, right? Like, what is the purpose of this tree? In the midst of something where everything about being in the garden is you have everything you need. You even have work. You have work to do. You have plenty of food. You're not worried about anything, and God is walking with you. Like, how amazing. But even in that everything is perfect kind of environment, also a thing that is perfect is for you to curb your appetite. Like, can you control your consumption? So you get to eat from everything. Can you actually curb yourself and not eat from only one Right? And Deuteronomy says the same thing. I think it's Deuteronomy's version of this kind of idea of, and again, I go back to, like, there, and if we were looking at the specifics within the law code, there's so many things like, you know, uh, if your neighbor's animal is coming and comes onto your property and falls into a pit, it is your responsibility to care for the animal. Which we're like, oh, well, of course, but we're also thinking, oh, if someone's puppy comes into my house, I mean, like, what does that cost you? It's nothing. But for them to feed an animal and to care for it is super, super costly. And so the way Deuteronomy is saying, you, this is the way to be a neighbor. Like, you, you can't. You have to then do all of this stuff for the benefit of your neighbor's wealth, not your own. And I, it is so opposite of how I've ever grown up and the instincts because I'm I'm love to claim the title strong independent woman and everyone has told me my whole life like fight for your own existence prove that you can take care of yourself no one else will you know that kind of it's like okay I've developed those habits but now it's it's I read Deuteronomy and I'm like oh that's not all that biblical actually and so so I say those things as a way to remind myself when I'm teaching. I really think this is what the Bible is telling us to do. And, and there is a, if I curb the way, like I want so much, but if I just kind of curb that, then the people around me can flourish as well. And that is, like in a theology of place, according to the Bible, and actually a lot of philosophers and sociologists who are talking about place and place making 
when people invest, we tend to think, if I invest in the people around me, I'm losing out. And the reality, like study after study after study, shows if you invest in the land around you and make the land more beautiful, everyone on that land becomes better. And so you're actually buoying up the entire community. That is just antithetical to the way that we think. Um, and so... So I mention it because I'm trying to break the habit of how I think. I'm trying to become more like Deuteronomy. And I'm not very successful most of the time, but every once in a while, I remember. <laughs> I do a little bit better. Is this sort of like uh, in the law code, you know, don't move the boundary lines. Don't move the ancient marker, right? So you have responsibility over this, and your job is not to try to get more. Yeah. Right? Your job is to, to be here and to not. And in the getting more, you're actually taking from somebody else. You're, you're moving their boundary line, not just your own. Yeah. Right? And apropos of what you're saying is that there's, I don't know if you guys have heard of the girl effect. There's a big sociological study how particularly, it was, I think it was specifically done in, in particular communities on the continent in Africa that when NGOs came and they gave financing to the male leaders in the community, the male leaders in the community used the money and the financing to make themselves more prosperous. When the financing was given to the females in the community, the females in the community used it to build school, to take care of the children, to make sure that water was coming, and instead it was much more, let's pretend, like Deuteronomy-focused, right? Like a different... It, I'm not suggesting um, that that's because women are better than men. I think it's because marginalized people tend to look out for marginalized people. And people who have been given power tend to continue to look for themselves. Um, so it's an yeah, interesting. Turns out grandmas are change makers. Grandmas no, are change makers. Yeah. It, I would. I would love yes. to like use this chance too to kind of to. Can we bring in the quote that you and I have been talking about in the walking? Let's walk oh, home in gosh, a way that yes. everyone makes it. Yeah. Um, oh man, I'm gonna, I forget the artist's name now. Um, you guys know this. It's the rapper Toby Nwang. No. Wangi? Nobody here is going to know this one. Anyway, he has a beautiful <laughs> song. I thought you guys were cooler than me. Um, it turns out I'm really cool. Um, so he has a song about how um, we, we need to walk in such a way that um, our whole community gets home. And he's a black man, and so, so much of his struggle is, am I going to make it home? Um, and this book that I, I've been reading called If God Still Breathes, Why Can't I? by Angela Parker. And she says, the whole message of Galatians, it's not so much about like, oh, do you have faith? Oh, good job. Hooray, you have faith. It is, hey, all of us as a community need to walk in such a way that we all get home. And I just think that's such a beautiful vision of community. Um, and she even gives an illustration of when she would drive home from seminary, she would get pulled over a lot. And she was all by herself. And she was like, if, if we're walking, though, as a community in such a way that we make sure I get home and you get home and we all get home, then it, isn't that lovely? Um, and I just love that image of like, let's watch, let's walk in such a way that we all get home. Let's walk in such a way that um, within the book of the 12 that 
nobody is out there selling the righteous for a pair of sandals. You know, nobody is out there moving the boundary lines or kicking people out of their housing so that they can have more property to sell. What if we walked in such a way that we all made it home? Cindy, Anna, thank you for for starting our conversation. Thanks. God bless you. Thank you guys. Thank you.